Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The first red people came over by sea. You're listening to an extract from The Red Children, read by the book's author, Maggie G. Once upon a time, Ramadan Bakri, a 17-year-old sea cadet, arriving at the harbour early to hoist the colours just after the January sun had risen, found them sitting, damp and red and shaking with cold, on the edge of the quay. They looked up in wonder at the rising sun to the east, then turned their heads to peer west over the bright cross-hatched lines of the masts of the yachts at Ramsgate. Maggie G, or Professor Maggie G, OBE, is a professor of creative writing at Bath Spa. She's the author of 16 acclaimed novels, has won multiple awards, and this year she's releasing not only her new book, The Red Children, out April 7th, but also a 20th anniversary edition of the Orange shortlisted novel, The White Family, which is out now and has a very special introduction from Booker winner Bernadine Evaristo. Maggie joined me for a really rather joyous and soul-warming chat, all about getting that first book published, fitting in at Oxford, and how she's feeling about the world right now. I must say that as someone who's not exactly forged a solid and steady career path around my singing, comedy and half-written novels, it was really quite something to meet such a literary force and she was utterly marvellous. I jumped straight in like a wide-eyed fangirl and asked Maggie to talk about what, for many, is a dream career. Looking through your biography, it's every aspiring author's dream I think to have 16 novels translated in 14 languages Granter the first Granter Young British Novelist Prize creative writing professor did you did you realize when you started out writing your first book that you would have such an entrenched career in this in this industry um Nobody ever really knows anything, do they, with writing? And I didn't come from a family of writers at all. You know, no one in the family had written, except actually I had a great 
grandma who wrote birthday card verses, which she sold by the suitcase load to a bloke who met her at the station. So she must have been paid pence. But um, no, I didn't. Uh, what I did have was parents who encouraged me. So when I when you as a child, everyone can everyone can create, can't they? They you know they every every child draws or acts or and then it's really about whether that falls on the barren ground or not. I think. And if you get encouraged, and I got encouraged, even though it was by parents who didn't, they didn't know the, the literary world, who does? Um, so yeah, I, um, I think I wrote because I had to. And I think that's probably why people sing as well. And it's the life force coming through, isn't it? So I certainly didn't start off writing thinking, I am going to write this is my 17th book, actually. I, I never thought that. I just thought, I've got to write this story. You know, this story I've got to tell. What was the process like writing that, getting that first one sort of off the starting blocks? The first one I didn't publish at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote it when I was 19, it, longhand, just to see if I could. I had a clue. Therefore, I just wrote as much as I could every day. I thought, oh, yes. I'll write, um, I'll write 4,000 words a day. I did. I had 30 days. That was 28 days, I think. Um, we were on holiday with the family. Um, and me, my cousin and I shared this attic, which was like my girl cousin, Sue. And um, in the day, I sat and wrote this novel. And see, I have to say, my family let me get on with it, whereas some families wouldn't have done. And um, yeah, and I finished it. I thought... Oh, good. All right. Now I'm a novelist. Because I thought, and in a way it's true, you have to finish it. Like you have to finish a song. You know, if it's no good, writing is good. But if you want to be a novelist, you've got to go the distance. You've got to get through it. And I think I learned to get through it. Even though that novel was never published. And in fact, I wasn't published. This might encourage lots of writers out there. I wasn't published till I was 32. So that was 13 years later. It was ni- so 1981, that was the, that's the one that got you the granter Best of Young British Novelists. You made that um, list. Is that the- yes, but if that does sound like it was very easy, doesn't it? But that novel I'd written when I was 25 and it took me seven years to get it published because I hadn't a clue. I didn't know what you did. There weren't creative writing courses then. There weren't writing workshops, really. No, there's nothing like that. So... Um, I thought the whole, well, in a way I was right. The whole thing is to write the book. And some people now, they kind of think, you don't really have to write the book. You just have to know all the tricks. Well, you don't. You've still got to write a good book. The thing I'm really fascinated with, especially when people, there's, there's a gap between writing the book and getting it published, is how do you keep that confidence that this is worth it? How do you go, yeah, no, this is, there is something, especially when in publishing, it's all about trends and all that's, there's, you know, too many books in that market that won't hit that, you know, how do you go, no, no, this is, this is worth persevering with? Well, nobody is ever sure, but you've just given me the answer. The answer being, who wants to be part of, I mean, I'm a, an ornery sort of soul I liked I'm contrary the last thing I want to do is be part of a trend 
<laughs> and in any case, in those days, you weren't really aware of trends. You weren't aware of the machinery. There was a different feeling about publishing. Um, and my book first got published um, because I got a letter out of the blue from a small publisher in Brighton, tiny, called Harvester Press. And they said, we've heard, I never know who they heard it from, but it must have been a friend of mine, um, that you have got a novel in a bottom drawer. Would you like to send it to us in case we can find the statue in the stone? Well, it's a bit patronizing really, but I just thought, well, it's sat there for so long. Send it them. Didn't hear anything for six months, wasn't surprised. And then out of the blue, I got a letter saying, oh, we think this is really good. We'd like to publish it, 500 pounds advance. So, so you see, it was just class. I was just living my life. You know, I was actually, because I wanted to get out of academic life. I was working in a hotel as a receptionist and, um, and yeah, kind of learning to live in London and, you know, having boyfriends and kind of just not knowing what I was doing really. Like, and then I got this letter and even then it wasn't straightforward. It was two years till it was published. Of course, this wouldn't be the Dabblers Book Club if I didn't bring up class. With a working class upbringing and state school education, Maggie credits her parents for giving her not only a strong belief in the value of art and literature, but also for allowing her the time and space to explore those interests. Everyone is creative. Everybody ought to have the same chance. And that's what I think I was taught. And really, my, my experience was quite bizarre because I did come. My parents were working class, but pushed themselves up. Um, they, neither of them went to university, but somehow my dad ended up a teacher and then a head teacher of one of the first comprehensives. So you see, that wasn't quite typical, although, you know, mum was from such a poor background that they were cutting the fried eggs into and so on. But they loved stuff like art and education so I've got that in me and they had three kids I suppose you could say were bright like so many families have bright kids and I got into Oxford from my state school the only person who you know it was not a state school that sent people there from state school to Oxford what was that like well I went in terror and my first year was terrible because I couldn't read it. So I thought every single person at my college had gone to Cheltenham Ladies and was laughing at me. You know, of course it wasn't true. There were other girls there who I slowly found who were like me, but we were all kind of desperately pretending, you know, to fit in. And of course I found out that people at uh, and I'm sure this is true, by the way, people at Oxford and Cambridge are not actually cleverer than people anywhere else. They've got the mystique and fantastic, probably very good educational backgrounds, a lot of them. You know, they've had a lot of teaching. But I didn't feel, what I learned was, I could swim in that sea after drowning for, <laughs> drowning for a bit. And that gave me confidence, do you see? So I thought, never again will I be frightened day of academics be of people from public schools. Little tiny bit of me is still frightened of, you know, frightened of being sneered at, but um, I'm certainly not frightened of academics. And I've been through that meal, I've got the degrees, and I want something else. That's not what I 
for one. I, I honor universities for what they desperately try to do to teach people, but it's not really my thing. I teach creative writing. I love that. But to me, that's about the writing. It's all about helping people, encouraging people to write. So I have a creative writing MA and I'm always interested in how people view it because I, you know, I think, well, maybe I should have done, learnt the stuff rather than the art. You've spoken a little bit about, I think you had a, in, in a recent article, not a recent article, but uh, I think you talked about Hanif Qureshi talking about 99% of his students can't write or something like that. And you say he's kind of missing it, you know, he's missing. Yeah. Oh, I get, yeah. I just get really bored by people who are taking the money to teach. And then just their students, you know, don't do it then. if you don't believe in them. It's not my experience at all. I've had the most brilliant students. The thing that, uh, I mean, not all of them, of course, but there are always fantastic students. And the, the only thing really that upsets me about my job is when the ones I think are best don't necessarily get published. And that really does piss me off because I don't, I still feel, okay, nevertheless, they have had the best kind of encouragement they could have from somebody who really believes in them. And I do believe in teaching craft, you know, editing and what makes a great plot and things like that. But um, it's so great. I mean, lots of people that I've taught have got published, thank God. But I do feel bad. But it just teaches you about the publishing industry. We've got to be realistic. You know, you can't live in this country and believe in government necessarily at the moment. You can't really have lived for you know four decades in the publishing industry and still believe that publishers are necessarily good judges. So the fact is, you just have to go on. You have to know the market these days. You must know the market. But you've also got all the classic literature that you've read, all the books that you've always read, and they teach you how to do it. And it's a storytelling tradition. And it's no good knowing too much about the industry, but nothing about your craft. Is there a difference? Have you noticed a difference as a teacher between someone who can write a book and writers? Do you ever get students and they come in and you're like, you're a writer through and through? And do you ever get people who have what it takes to write a novel? And Yeah, you never know until they do write it. It's partly the fault of the courses because we're always looking quite intensely. You can only workshop a chapter. Therefore, it's very tempting for people just to write good chapters. And I have always tended to teach at Arvon or anywhere else, plot, got to get to the end. And I've always said, just use word count. Just, you know, because that very early longhand novel, I did discover if you write, if you just, even if you only wrote 500 words a day, you would, I think, finish a novel in six months. So it's a page a day. It won't necessarily be good, but you'll get there, then you can edit it. I don't think there is a difference. I think some people are just willing to, some people are less afraid. Part of becoming a writer is you have to have, writers always have thin skins. Creative people always have thin skins. It's got to be thick enough, though, to endure and get on and do the next. I mean, I've had a lot of rejection in my career. And in the end, each time, I know I've just got to get on. Often if I write another novel, then the last novel will get published. That's what happened when Maggie was dealing with a stream of rejections for what would become her most successful novel. The White family tackles the subject of racial hatred as it looks for the roots of violence within one British family. 
Eventually, it would be shortlisted for the Orange Prize and what's now the International Dublin Literary Award. But in 1995, no one was picking it up. So Maggie cracked on with The Ice People, her 1998 sci-fi book set in a future ice age. It wasn't until 2002, seven years after she'd written The White People, that it was published by Saki Books. Saki loved Reddit. They, they, of course, they were from the Lebanon. They had come to this country as migrants. They knew about British racism. They knew it wasn't kind of unfair to the British and um, came out and became a success. So do you see what I mean? It wouldn't have been enough for me to just put it in a drawer, break my heart, stop writing and think, huh, I will be discovered in 50 years time. I had to get on and write something else. And I wrote a totally different book. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Either you want to do it so badly that you go on in the face of rejection, in the face of the market, and you also are careful to have good links. No writers. It's writers. When things have been bad for me, it's been other writers. Um, you know, I could tell you so many writers who've helped me. And um, Crace, for example, Bernadine Evaristo, Colin Grant, Mike Phillips. Lots of writers have encouraged me when publishers were not encouraging me. And it was a Turkish Jewish writer, Morris Fahi, who sent my book, not an agent, who sent it to Saki. So let's let's get to the Red Children. It's set in 2030s Ramsgate, which when I saw it, I was like, oh, it's futuristic. And then I thought, no, Hadja, you're old. It's <laughs> it's not far off. Um, I'm guessing there's there's a reason you set it in sort of the not too distant future. I only ever write about the present and the future because they're the most exciting things, because everything's not already been decided about them. And it's a big it's a challenge, too. And especially as, as an older person, I don't want to feel I can no longer. I think a lot of older writers stop writing about the past. Well, to me, that's no fun, you know, and the future is really fun. I never specify the time, but I do say it's there is a world where 
I wrote it in lockdown, so very much with an awareness of, of the virus. And I imagine a world where people's thinking is changed by the fact that waves of mutated virus arrive every, every now and again, a bit like flu. And this plays into fear of foreigners, into xenophobia in some people in the town. Um, mostly not, though. It's seen as a, a very kindly place. I don't know if you've read Elizabeth Gaskell. I read her in later life. She's very lively and very kind of fun, very political. And Cranford, she says something like, there never was such a town for kindness. And I nick that as a description of Ramsgate. And essentially, this is a book about happiness. It's about how the future can be imagined in a better way. Four billion years ago was the real beginning of the story, though. Long before there was sea between us and Europe. Long before our town was built in a cradle between two cliff tops. Long before the Romans and the Vikings, all of whom landed here and fought and died on our beaches. On this stretch of shore, where British history, written history at least, began. Those who stayed turned into us, the children of migrants, the British. I felt we need a slightly utopian book and that's what I've written and it is about it's about migration it's about you know I live on the south coast of Kent as you know it is where migrants are always arriving so it's a very live issue down here and you hear a huge range of different voices but what is interesting is that actually this is where migrants have always arrived it's where the Romans arrived. It's where the Vikings arrived. It's just... So, and whose kids are we? We're obviously the children of migrants. I mean, we're an island. That must be the way we got here. So what fuels this fascination with climate change and immigration? And how is Maggie feeling about the world right now? My first climate change book was back in 1990, called Where Are the Snows? And I'd actually written about it before. It just seemed instinctively to me. I've always been interested in science. And also, I love gardening. And you notice plants coming out sooner. You know, a quince that flowers in December when it shouldn't be flowering until February. So um, that's in this book. And, of course, climate causes migration. And my migrants actually come from Gibraltar, uh, where they've been there. My migrants... <laughs> On Neanderthals, it's very hard to get the the it's hard to get the ideas in this book across because it comes across like a fairy tale when you're reading it. But the first Neanderthal was not found in the Neander Valley. You see, the things we all think we know wasn't found in the Neander Valley. It was found, uh, I think, eight years earlier in Gibraltar, and it was a woman. Gibraltar, so it should be G G Gibraltar woman, not Neanderthal man. And there, in my fantasy, they have survived in the caves under Gibraltar, which is where they, that's where their remains are. They've survived there. And as the world heats up, it starts becoming too hot. And so they come north. So it's a, they're migrating 
towards the Cove and they come to the south coast of England. And they come because actually Ramsgate's very like Gibraltar. It's got, uh, in all sorts of ways, it's got tropical plants. You can probably just about see one through my back window. Um, and it's got, it's got cliffs like, like Gibraltar. It's got so many things that are similar to Gibraltar. It's got caves, which, of course, these Neanderthals would like to, li- li- would like to live in, even though they are offered homes by the, the people in Ramsgate. Um, Ramsgate is sort of a bit cut off from the centre in my fantasy because, you know, I imagine that it seems to me sometimes that that's what central government is trying to do. It's hoping always to shrink the welfare state, I feel. But the good thing is that this makes Ramsgate do all sorts of things for itself. And there is a very, there is a wonderful young head teacher and he decides, doesn't matter about the forms, there's no paperwork, but he decides, and it doesn't matter that it's in theory a grammar school, because Kent still has grammar schools, he will just admit all of the migrant children. Fast forward to Ramsgate a dozen or two years ago, before this all started. It had heritage fishing boats, trips to see the seals, its Pugin Cliff Catholic and its Montefiore Cliff Jewish, Archkeyside cafes and local historians, and an eager, newly bronzed contingent of Londoners. As Britain warmed up, cities were like ovens, while chilly coastal resorts gained weeks of sunshine. Now only January and February were cold. More city dwellers moved down, then the waves of virus sent even more. People with cash to flash, who put a quick shine on facades of houses and restaurants, and a hopeful look on the faces of people with services to sell. So there were cutting-edge chefs and foragers, writers and whelk potters, jazz bands, brass bands, actors and bakers, atheists, Hindus and Muslims, builders and bin men, Line dancers and indie hoppers, smoke boy silver influencers and supersized sunglasses, and blueberry sea cadets passing each other, calling, smiling, many different tribes making friends in the summer streets and cafes. Oh, and ghosts, new ghosts and old ghosts, ghosts of young men, ghosts of the invaders, Belgians, Romans, Norsemen, though you have to listen, and paragliding girls and green parakeets, their shadows crossing and recrossing us. A lot of my real knowledge about Neanderthals came from going, you know, I do believe in writers going out and discovering things. And travel, we've not been able to travel, which has been so frustrating. Um, But you can always travel cheaply. And if you always travel with a notebook, to me, I'll always find a story. And going to Gibraltar, I didn't want to go there. My husband had been commissioned to write a book about Gibraltar in the Second World War. So I went reluctantly and I thought, oh, bloody shopping, it's going to be all shopping. And I was so ignorant. I knew nothing. I could just imagine Main Street. I had no idea that the top of the rock is all this still almost the same vegetation as in the Anderthal days. And that there are these fantastic monkeys up there. And I had no idea there were Neanderthal caves but had this great luck of running across two they're now professors from the museum who took me in. They realised my interest was serious 
And they took me down the cliff, breakneck, I'm terrified of heights, down the cliff and then into the caves. And then, what a story. Then it had to sort of marinate. Uh, this happened in 2013, the books come out in 2022. So you never know where these things will go. If you've got your notebook and you keep exploring, yeah. You, yeah, you have to just be curious and brave enough to believe that your ideas can be something, just anything. Easy one. What are you reading at the moment? Or the last great book you enjoyed? Oh, well, I loved Irenaeus and Coach's short stories. Um, Nudie Branch, I loved those. I loved Selena Gordon's Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. Um, I thought they were super. But also, we're reading aloud the whole works of Trollope. Wow. Now, I never wanted to read Trollope because I associated him with the picture on the cover of the first book I ever saw by him, which was a rather straight-laced clergyman. It's not like that. Tony's got these brilliant female characters, very funny and loud and sort of interesting and not at all like Dickens's women. They're not all fainting everywhere. So that, I'm reading that aloud and then I'm doing my other reading, you know. Um, and also, because I want to know about it, I thought I want to know about the Kate Clunchy dispute so I'm going to read it and so I've just started reading that and we did the same for Jordan Peterson I want to know I don't want to hear other people's versions do you worry about writing in this day and age it's all a bit strange how people interpret what cancel culture means and do you feel the freedom to express yourself as much and to explore ideas as much well, as you can tell, I've always felt the freedom because, you know, I felt the freedom enough for everybody to turn my books down. So um, do I feel the freedom? Well, I'll have to think a bit about how people react to our work. So, you know, I can think of, I, I mean, I personally, you want to know what I think? I believe in free speech, even when it's hateful. Because I think if it's out there, we can see it. And then we can not like it and we can criticise it and we can write back to it. That's my own personal belief. But nevertheless, I don't see the point in upsetting people for no reason. There's not much point. I mean, I do think, honestly, comics are a different case. That's their job. They're supposed to go out there. They're, they're the licensed jester who upsets the king. And they can do it. And the, the king would kill anyone else. But, and they've got to be on the edge, to me. You know, but books stay around for a long time. You're always going to be embarrassed by something. And the White family is coming out again after 20 years. And, of course, I'd write it slightly differently. And I'm very delighted that it's got a forward from Bernardine Evaristo. But times change, language changes. Um, I think people worry a bit too much about language and getting it right. It's really not about, it's not enough to be able to say, I've never used any bad words. And yet you don't know anything about cultures. You don't have any friends. You know, you don't have any friends of colour. You don't, you know, it's not enough to, I'm very virtuous. I didn't do what he did. You know what I mean? Or she did. And indignation, it's all about saying you're better than someone else. And that's why I feel very uneasy when I hear certain voices of indignant politicians. Or, and I just think, I don't want you round in my house because we wouldn't get on. You know, I couldn't make jokes and, and you'd be watching me. You know, I would I always say this because I've got a few conservative friends and they say, we don't like woke. I say, well, I'm woke. But 
what do you mean by that? You know, and of, of course, some of the things that I disapprove of, I will disapprove of, but I disapprove even more of not being able to know what I think, you know. That's true. Yeah, that feeling of being watched, that feeling of heart not mattering and intention not mattering and just the fact that we are all human and we will not know everything about everyone at all times. <laughs> I hope that means you're going to like the book because it's really all about that. I am sure I will. I'm so excited about it. Oh, this has been absolutely wonderful, Maggie. Thank you so much for speaking to me about your book and writing. And Thank you. It was lovely. And this is the last line of my book. We're alive. One love, everything that is. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.